Welcome to Pathways. I'm Randy Brutkowitz, and today we're talking with scientific analyst and policy expert, Dr. Yvette Seeger. Since receiving her doctorate in genetics from the State University of New York at Stony Brook, Dr. Seeger has cultivated a broad portfolio using her scientific, analytic, and policy knowledge on issues affecting the conduct of research and the sustainability of the biomedical research enterprise. As she currently serves as the Director of Science Policy at the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology, or FACIB, let's learn how education and cultivation has aided Dr. Seeger in an atmosphere keen on informative biological and biomedical sciences. Yvette, welcome to Pathways. Thank you for having me. You're Director of Science Policy at FACIB. What are your responsibilities and what does a typical day for you look like? That's one of my favorite questions. So um, my responsibilities are I oversee our science policy portfolio. Um, I have a team of three analysts uh, who work with me plus my own portfolio. Uh, but we work on behalf of FACET's 30 member societies in about seven key areas of, of policy that, that are shared across those 30 societies. So uh, those include the use of animals in research, training and education of investigators, uh, data science and data sharing, clinical and translational research, uh, research evaluation, so that includes peer review, uh, and uh, we also have shared research resources. I'm running through my whole thing off, off of here. We have a lot. Uh, and then we also have a public outreach document called Breakthroughs in Bioscience and Horizons in Bioscience that uh, are written by scientists for the public. So those are our seven main areas that we work on, but uh, we also respond to real-time issues that come from uh, the agencies or the federal government at large of the executive office or judicial branch. So we're keeping track of all those different things. Um, and then uh, what my typical day looks like is I get in my car, I know I'm going to get stuck in traffic, and after that, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, we will start thinking that you know what the day looks like. But a lot of it is responding to requests from our member societies or individual scientists who raise concerns about issues uh, and want to know what FACIB is going to do about it or if we've heard about it. It's, it's constant communication. Uh, that is certainly the one thing is uh, my, my email and phone are usually very, very busy. <laughs> So how did you get your job at FASIP? How did I get my job? So this is my fourth job in the Beltway. Um, I've been doing science policy for 13 years. So I left the bench and, and came directly to Washington. Um, and I was fortunate enough to learn about this job through my network. Uh, I have someone, uh, a mentor, and actually a former boss who I call my fairy job mother, uh, who through her network heard that this position was open and she told my boss, I have the right person for you and we connected and, and luckily I made it through the interview process. So, uh, you know, it, it was that classic case of your network helps you find the job. I probably would have found uh, out about it, but I probably wouldn't have applied had I not had that nudge from my mentor. Um, and of my four jobs, three have been obtained that way. So let's let's talk about networking and, and maybe your, your fairy mentor mother, as, as you called her, in terms of how important she has been throughout this 
the steps to help you get to where you're at and maybe just at every step? Um, yeah, sure. I think I, I think I got the question. It broke up a little bit, but um, my mentors and and I have several mentors. I had several mentors in grad school beyond even my PhD advisor. I had kind of these career counselor mentors. Uh, it, it's it's different when I've I've worked for a lot of them, but then I've always maintained the connection. So that when a job comes up, there are no hard feelings. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where, um, and, and I see it too as uh, a supervisor now, um, the tables are turned when you're, you're responsible for someone's performance evaluation. But in the end, I, I have, for my staff, I have their backs all the time and I want them to succeed. And, and if them succeeding means that they leave the position, there's no, no hard feelings. And that, that's kind of something you don't understand as you're coming up the ranks is that truly if, if you're successful, your people will grow and continue to have skills or realize or recognize different interests. So um, I, I always had those three or four mentors who served as sounding boards for what I was thinking at that time. Uh, they helped me realize things that, I was actually really, you know, I took for granted that I was good at, but I didn't recognize that among my peers, I probably had it as a higher rank skill than I would give myself credit for because it's something that I just do. For instance, I'm, I'm a good writer. Uh, I, it's hard for me to say that because I, I just like to write, but um, that's one of my main skill sets. And they always remind me that your writing is better than most. And this is something that you have to sell. Um, in terms of transitioning from being an analyst to um, being a manager, I didn't necessarily see those managerial skills in myself, but my mentors were like, you do this, you manage these massive projects, you manage budgets. Um, so it's it kind of, it, it's, it's this balance of helping me identify things that I like to do, things that I may not realize are strengths. Um, and also, keeping our eyes and ears open for each other. I mean, they're always looking for potential employees, but they're also keeping me in mind when jobs become available. And it may not be the right job at that time, but it may get me thinking again about my skill sets because I think your skill sets have to be reevaluated constantly. And my mentors are, are good for being that prod to, to remind me. It's like, yeah, you haven't thought about what you're doing lately. So, you know, what are you good at? What do you need to improve? Um, and it, it's, it's a really nice balance with what I get from my direct supervisor as part of just employee management, you know, but it doesn't have the raise or, or the score that goes with it. it it's, self, it's more self-reflective. I think you, you hit on a couple of things that are really important. One is that it makes you believe, certainly in many respects, how we are as individuals as, and as scientists is we're our own worst critic in many ways. And that makes it difficult for us to really see the kind of skills we have, the talents we have, unless we have somebody who we trust uh, pointed out to us. For example, the, the mentors who you mentioned really saw some things in you that you really didn't see in yourself and encouraged you to really explore those things and it allowed you to be successful at the various steps. So in terms of people who are listening in, say graduate students and postdocs, what kind of advice can you give them in terms of 
helping them build a further network or a greater network than they currently have? That's that's a great question, uh, and and uh, it's always the the thing that I think people are looking for advice uh, for the most. And and I'll say it up front: networking is hard. It's got work in the name for a reason. Uh, it comes more naturally to some people, um, but it is hard for all of us. Even uh, even those people who say, "Wow, you know, you're really great at networking." Uh, no, I, I, I have to do that push. It's normal to feel like you need to push yourself into that environment. Um, the keys to it are not just always making it about work. Um, you know, I, I think where I've had some success is learning a little bit about each person that I talk to that may be more personal. Um, and that helps open the conversation that isn't so in your face, I'm looking for a job, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, because I think that's the question that's on everybody's mind, but you have to build that relationship. Um, it's, it's a constant interview in a way, but it's also an opportunity to exchange information. Um, you know, it, it may not be that you end up working for that person, but you may collaborate with them. So you should always be really careful um, with your networking uh, and, and keep, you have to foster it um, and do the follow-up um, and, and making the right connections at the right time. So a common connection for me is I'm originally from Ohio. Uh, so, so people will connect me based on um, my love of sports teams that love to break my heart. Um, or, you know, I also have horses. And so, you know, if, if someone has ridden horses in the past or they have a child that's interested in horses like kind of finding that to, to that topic that will take you out of that work mode and soften you uh and and re remember that you're talking to a real person uh you know sometimes the conversation may be going a little in a weird direction, but you don't know what happened to them in that day, or you don't know the last email that they got. So, you know, you may think, oh, they hate me. No, no, they probably had something else on their mind. And that's happened to me where I've reached out and I'm like, I'm so sorry that I was so brief with the response, but, you know, let's have a call. So, you know, but you really have to, don't be deterred, you know, but you have to cultivate it. Um, you know, if probably like me taking care of plants, you know, it's an uphill battle. <laughs> Let's go to the very beginning here in terms of your initial interest in science. I like to ask my guests, when were you first bitten by the science book? You know, that, that's an interesting question. And uh, I, the first thing that popped into my mind as you asked it was, um, I believe I was in first grade um, and I was at a Montessori school and um, we did a lot of field work and I made my parents crazy because I collected grasshoppers. And I didn't necessarily know it was science at the time, but I just loved to understand things. I, I, you know, we would read about the monarch butterflies and I wanted to learn everything about monarch butterflies. You know, we would do hands-on experiments uh, in second grade and you make ooze go everywhere. And that was just really, um, exciting for me. I come from a family of non-scientists. Um, as I mentioned, I'm from Ohio. I'm from uh, Northeastern Ohio. come from a very blue-collar, working-class family. Um, certainly the first one to pursue uh, a postgraduate degree, um, but my parents always, thankfully 
fostered my creativity um, and were so patient when they had Cool Whip bowls of grasshoppers all throughout their house because their daughter was really into grasshoppers. So, you know, I think it was, again, it goes back to having people, they may not have the right answer for you right then, but uh, just fostering that, that creativity. And then as I got to high school, it started focusing a little bit more specifically on biology um, and uh, even more specifically on this. The second I learned about DNA, it was like the coolest thing ever. And it was just like, how can this stuff that I can't really see control all of this information, how we look, um, our behaviors. Um, and, and so it was really this Pollyanna-ish naivete that uh, luckily my parents fostered and, and I just continued following. And, and really, I, I, I would say I didn't even shape it as an interest in science probably until my last two year, years of high school, but it was always being curious. I know it's a long-winded answer for it, but, you know, I never, I, I didn't have scientists in my family to say, I'm going to grow up and be a scientist. But um, you know, I just always, I was in an environment where my parents said, follow your interests and my interests were science. Now that's great. And, and you were an undergrad. What I thought was interesting, you seem to have double majors. One is zoology or you're interested in genetics, but your second major, politics and government. Is, is this what your interest or your, your budding interest or long-term interest that you had had in science policy, what sent you down in that direction? You know, I, if it, hindsight is twenty twenty, um, and as I mentioned, I grew up in in Cleveland. Uh, I would say growing up in Ohio, a state where um, you always feel like your vote counts, um, and you get a lot of attention during election year. My parents were very politically active. It, it just seemed natural. Uh, I picked a liberal arts college because I just loved exploring. Honestly. I could go back to college today because there are still classes that I didn't get to take. Um, and I took as part of my liberal arts requirements, I just took classes that sounded fun and politics. I, I love the government structure. I, I, like I love studying uh, the constitution in high school. And I was like, ah, oh, well, we'll do that. And I just kept taking more and more classes. And I realized I had already passed being just a minor and then I would be two classes shy of a major. So um, as any scientist uh, watching will, will recognize when you're in the lab, you have a lot of incubation time. And that was great uh, for reading those 400 pages I would have to read for politics and government. Uh, so, you know, it was unusual, but actually Ohio Wesleyan where um, I did my undergrad uh, because of what they saw me struggling balancing my science classes and my politics and government um, just with scheduling, uh, they have started working a lot more closely with the science departments. And there are a lot more, not necessarily full double majors, but there's this cross-pollination of, you should probably take a politics class so you understand the government um, so that you understand federal funding. Uh, that was actually the main emphasis. I was like, oh, well, politics is interesting to me, but I also knew that there wasn't a money tree in the backyard of, of the institution that I thought it would be important to understand how the government worked for federal funding. Uh, and then it just ended up as a second major and uh, it was fun. <laughs>
So from there, you went to graduate school. So what, what was the impetus to explore and pursue graduate education? So all I had heard when I interviewed, again, you know, my, my parents, it was so they, they just wanted to make sure I had the best undergraduate education possible and not knowing science, uh, they would talk to people that had advanced degrees in science. So it turned out our dentist, his wife was a PhD microbiologist. And so she was one of these hidden mentors uh, where I was like, well, what do you do? You know, how, what are the jobs that are available in science? You know, what's the process? Um, and so I started knowing what questions to ask when I interviewed at undergrad colleges. So I started in, uh, asking the questions of what are your placements for uh, PhD programs, what types of careers, uh, have you had success placing your students, um, not really knowing exactly what at the end it would still, you know, I, I, I think back on that time, and I think I probably just said I was going to be a professor, um, uh, you know, possibly at an undergraduate institution, but it seemed pretty clear to me that the PhD was the gateway if I wanted to continue um, in science and research, which at that time is what I wanted to emphasize. That was what I needed to do. So, you know, I just kept asking people, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? I, I felt like everyone else uh, knew what the, the path was. Uh, but again, uh, at Ohio Wesleyan, they were very familiar with having a first in family postgraduate applicants. So, you know, they really helped uh, make sure we were prepared for the GRE. But, um, you know, I knew that was the next step, but I was just like, oh, that'll be another five, six years and I don't have to figure out what I really want to do uh, until after then. So again, it was this Pollyanna sort of approach to doing what I thought was interesting and fun. All right, so you're in graduate school, you are getting a doctorate in genetics and you originally had a consideration, oh, I was going to be, I'll be a professor in an undergraduate institution. But that's not what happened. When did your mind change in order to start thinking about science policy? So I was fortunate enough to, um, so my PhD is from uh, Stony Brook University, uh, but which is affiliated with Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories. So I ended up doing my work in a lab at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, which um, is a small uh, research institution funded predominantly by soft money. Uh, and, and some of the leaders there had been very involved in politics. Uh, you know, I got there shortly after the initiation of the Human Genome Project. Um, so I could see the power of speaking on behalf of your science to the public. Um, and I went in with this long-standing interest in politics. It was actually very interesting when I interviewed uh, for grad school, you interviewed at Stony Brook and Cold Spring Harbor, and the Stony Brook faculty members were curious as to why I'd spent the time uh, in the politics classes, and then when I interviewed at Cold Spring Harbor, they're like, that's fantastic. That means you're really aware of what's going on. You know, it's very important to know what the government is doing. Uh, so I felt like they understood me. <laughs> then I, later I, I learned that it was a place where I was allowed to be weird. And they, they expected you to be, um, expected you to be more than just at the bench, uh, that they knew that there was this commitment back to the public. So 
as part of that, uh, I learned about a Capitol Hill day for graduate students and postdocs. And I, I asked Cold Spring Harbor leadership, I said, you know, I have a background in this. I'm interested in doing this. Would you help sponsor my trip to Washington, D.C.? And they said, why, of course we will, except you're going to have to carry these very heavy pamphlets about Cold Spring Harbor and talk about the lab. And, oh, they were very heavy. But um, I loved it. People either thrive or hate the Capitol Hill experience because you think you're going to have these meetings where you're talking to your congressman and you're like, hey, how's it going? And, you know, talk about your science when really you may be talking to an aide for five minutes in the hallway. And I loved it. I came back. I was so energized. I think I was at year three and a half. And um, when other opportunities came up, uh, the staffers from the offices I met with said, hey, send that that young woman up. Uh, we enjoyed talking to her. You know, would, would you be willing to, to send her back down to, to D.C. to talk to us about this? So I kept going and they kept sponsoring me. Um, a lot of scientists don't necessarily like that, but I seemed to really enjoy it. And my thesis advisor could see that I enjoyed that. Um, and around the beginning of my fourth year, I went to my committee and said, this is probably the better path for me. Uh, I love my science, but I love it enough to step away from it. This is my plan for graduating. And they supported it uh, and uh, helped keep me on task, uh, figure out exactly what I needed to do to have a complete thesis project so that I was still getting a PhD because at that point I had already passed my quals and, and I wasn't leaving without a PhD, but it was really important to have their support uh, to recognize that perhaps my better skill set was the politics than the science. I think I probably would have been fine uh, um, if I had stayed with science, but you know, if I if I were to look back, I think I would. I didn't have enough of the passion for the science, but I have enough passion to talk about science, if that makes sense. No, no, absolutely. So right out of the gate, when when you graduated. You were a science and technology policy fellow at the National Academies. How did that opportunity come about? Yes, yeah, so that was part of my timeline. Uh, well, initially I applied for the AAAS uh, Science and Technology Policy Fellowships, but in the meantime, I wasn't going to put all my eggs in one basket, which was a smart move. Uh, and I came across the Merzion uh, Science and Technology Policy Fellowship Program uh, and I was like, that's cool. I've heard of the National Academies. This looks really awesome. Uh, and I applied and uh, it turned out the thing that had been uh, sort of the, the trouble spot for my science training, which was my politics and government background, was something that really intrigued at that time the, the manager of that program because she was working on a report about presidential appoint, appointments. So she needed someone that understood the federal government and, and could easily just jump in. And like, I already understood what a presidential appointee with Senate approval meant. Uh, yeah, I, she didn't have to explain that part of the government to me. Um, and that was the major appeal, I, I think, uh, it was the right project being available when my application was there, uh, but it was an online application with a phone interview. Uh, what I liked about it is it, at that time, it was a 10-week program. It was always driven as learn about DC, 
Um, I was done with my PhD, but most of the people who participated in my class were maybe third or fourth year graduate students, uh, a couple of postdocs that were trying to figure out if policy was for them. So, so it works well to test drive it before you test drive before you buy. Um, but you get enough of the flavor because the academy certainly opened doors when I was interviewing. And again, there was another great mentor in my supervisor for that project. Her advice to me is, you're moving here with your PhD. Um, you need to have a job by the time this ends. You need to have at least one interview a week, whether or not it's just meeting someone for coffee or it's an actual job interview. She's like, because you're not, you're not staying here. You know, I don't have a job for you. So your, your assignment is to go out there and, and use this experience to get a job. And I did. <laughs> so maybe you could give us an idea for our, our graduate students and postdocs tuning in in terms of what kind of advice you would give them if they're contemplating going down a career path that's different than academia? That's always, and people, people are always scared. Uh, I think they're becoming less scared of what people are thinking, but um, I, I know how hard it is to sit there with your peers who are thinking, oh, I'm gonna go for this great postdoc with this person uh, who's highly recognized. Um, I'm going to apply for this faculty position. You have to do what's right for you. Um, I think it's becoming more and more accepted uh, that not everyone can go into academia. Uh, I think uh, regardless of what path you choose, I, I think you need to do a lot of informational interviews to find out what life is really like. Um, I know I've certainly counseled some of my former classmates who said, I didn't realize being a PI was writing grants all day. <laughs> and I knew very well uh, that it was writing grants all day. Um, so, you know, think about what you like to do and how that overlaps with um, what you think you want to do. Uh, and you might find that they're not aligned or it may be a different job title. That would be another, another piece of advice I would certainly give is don't get hung up on the job title. Um, <laughs> I think two of my four jobs, they they had made up job titles, and at one of my jobs, it just kept changing all the time, depending on um, it was a it was a larger corporate company. Uh, so as they rearranged the company, they would just be like, "Oh, you get a new title." Um, don't get hung up on the title. Get hung up on what you're doing, what your tasks are, and what you're learning. Um, and you know. Don't, and it's very hard to, to say it, but don't get hung up on what um, your peers may think about what your interests are. Ultimately, you're the one having the job. Um, and I, I brace yourself for, you know, perhaps your mentor not being 100% accepting, but that's why you need multiple mentors. This isn't about having one person who controls whether you succeed or, or fail, you know, having that other person uh, to talk to. And I, I certainly had one at Cold Spring Harbor, um, at least one, I had several, uh, who when the going got tough, uh, as my advisor realized, that even though I had opportunities to go on for a postdoc, I was going to do this DC thing, um, that it wasn't 
it wasn't personal, you know, that I always had that support. And, and ultimately he has seen me do my work uh, lately. And he's like, you're so happy. You're so good at this, you know, and now I understand why. Um, you know, but at the time they may not understand and just know that ultimately it's your job. It's you're, you're making this, you're making these decisions based on what you like to do, what you want your lifestyle to look like. Uh, I mentioned I have horses. When I was working in the lab, I couldn't afford to have horses, nor I couldn't afford it in terms of time or money. Um, and I'd given up a lot to, you know, that's my hobby. Everybody, if I could show you my whole office, you'd see a shrine to my horses. So I'm the crazy horse lady that you're talking to. But um, you know, you, you have to do you. Um, and I, I love that scientists uh, are so unafraid to go out there with crazy ideas pertaining to science, but they get a little conservative when it comes to careers that don't necessarily look like their bosses, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's difficult for them to feel as though that they're letting down their, their mentors because they're going in a different career path. And they may not have had all the, the training. Um, and, and it, it, you know, if you've known from the get-go you were going to do science, I, I think I've been lucky because I'm a magpie. So it's like, ooh, that looks fun. I'm going to do that. Ooh, that looks fun. Um, that's not necessarily everyone's experience. And so if you feel like you've put all this work into it and you realize you have to get different training to match the job that actually seems better suited that may seem frustrating but it's actually really exciting because you know you're doing something that is going to get you to where you ultimately want to be it will be work it's work no matter what i mean obviously i i have this sort of optimistic perspective of oh you know that didn't work out i'm gonna go have fun you know and don't be defeatist is certainly a big key thing to to think about as you're going through this I think it's just, that's great. I have one last question for Yvette, and that is, is there a question that I should have asked you, but I didn't? Uh, usually the question uh, that I get asked when people look at my CV, they recognize that I've worked in a whole bunch of different sectors. Um, and again, that is me doing what I do best, which is looking at potential what I think are gaps in my training and and using career opportunities to to test drive them or fill them. So um, I started in a nonprofit. I worked as a contractor within a federal agency. I worked for a for-profit. I'm back at nonprofit. Uh, and I, I feel that um, you need to figure out which environment is best for you. Uh, I never would have thought without the guidance of my mentor to go into the private sector. Um, and, you know, the circumstances at that time, I was just, I trusted her and she's like, I can't really tell you what the job is going to be because it depends on the contracts, but I promise you that you'll have fun. And she said the key words, which is you'll have fun. And uh, I actually realized I had different skill sets that I didn't know I had. Um, I, you think, oh, I'm going to work for for-profit. I was really good at winning over clients and my lights just went off. <laughs> um, but I was really good at identifying what clients wanted and um, getting co winning contracts. I'm naturally very competitive. Uh, and 
uh, it, I didn't realize I would enjoy it as much as I did. So I have no regrets about, about that, but it's not for everyone. Um, but you know, having that willingness to try, um, and also that willingness to, um, pull the plug when it's not working. Uh, and that's also very scary. And, and it was scary for my parents because, uh, they both worked in their jobs for 30 years and retired. So they're like, why can't you stay somewhere? Uh, and, uh, now they understand, especially in the beltway, staying somewhere for two to three years is considered long-term. But I think that is, uh, another, another piece of advice I would give, uh, people listening is if it's not working, figure out your exit strategy, but always make sure you're employed. Great. That's very, very nice. Thank you very much, Yvette. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Yvette Seeger, for sharing her st story of the steps she took to become FACIB's Director of Science Policy. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website and on iTunes under Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcast, for some of our interviews, we've captured a video as well. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another biomedical PhD degree holder which landed them in their current and very exciting non-academic position. I'm Randy Brunkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brunkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.